0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and politics. Uh, As we've been doing during this entire work from home period, we've been bringing you these SALT Talks, which are digital conversations with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. What we try to do in these SALT Talks is provide you a window into the minds of subject matter experts, the same way we do at our in-person SALT conferences as well as provide a platform for big important ideas that we think are shaping the world. Today, we're very excited to welcome the Right Honorable Philip Hammond to SALT Talks. Uh, Mr. Hammond was the former chancellor of the Exchequer in the United Kingdom, a role that he served in from 2016 to 2019 when he was a close political ally of Prime Minister Theresa May. Uh, Prior to that, he was a member of parliament for 13 years for Runnymede and Weybridge from 1997 to 2019. He also served in the shadow cabinets of Michael Howard and David Cameron as the shadow chief secretary to the treasury and the shadow secretary for the state of work and pensions. As chancellor, uh, Mr. Hammond pushed for an end to austerity measures. And in 2019, he spoke of his intention uh, to tender his resignation should Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, be announced as prime minister due to the fact that he couldn't support a no deal Brexit. Today, he serves as an advisor to several businesses, including in the investment management and fintech arenas. If you have any questions for Mr. Hammond during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. And he is also the chairman of SALT. So Anthony, I'm gonna turn it over to you for the interview.
1: Okay, terrific, John. I, I appreciate it. Of course, I have to, let everybody know on the call that the duck that John used to have behind him was removed by his mother-in-law. So she came over to the house and said the duck is not working for him. I just had to bring it up before we get this thing started. So, uh, Mr. Hammond, it's great to have you, sir. Uh, uh, Philip, uh, tell us a little bit about your background for Americans that don't realize uh, who you are and what you've done and the uh, the great impact you've had on the uh, British government and the par- and the parliament.
2: Well, I left um, Parliament last December at the general election when I didn't stand uh, for re-election following the takeover of the party by Boris Johnson. Um, Prior to that, I was three years as Chancellor of the Exchequer, effectively equivalent of the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Um, Before that, I was the Foreign Secretary, Secretary of State in U.S. terms, and before that, Defense Secretary for three years. So altogether, I was nine years uh, at cabinet-level government under David Cameron and Theresa May. Uh, now I'm out, um, as you, as John said, uh, advising a number of businesses, but also still taking part in the ongoing public debate, of course, now about COVID and how we manage the uh, effects of COVID on the economy. But also right here in the UK, we still have uh, running the ongoing uh, discussion about our future relationship with Europe, something that's kind of dropped onto the back burner over the last few months, but will come right back into prominence again as we get towards the 31st of December, which is when, if no deal is made, uh, the UK and the European Union will start trading with each other at arm's length with tariffs and full border controls.
1: and so, I mean, take, take us back through the history of this. We're, we're going to go back to June of 2016. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron uh, decided to have a referendum related to the Brexit. And again, for our American friends on the call, why did Prime Minister Cameron do that? Did he need to do that? Was that part of your uh, parliamentary system where it was necessary, or was this a voluntary decision that he made
2: alongside of his uh, advisors? So it was a political decision. We need to go back a little bit earlier to the general election of 2015 when the um, Brexit party, which was UKIP, uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party, was making huge gains in the polls. And it looked like Cameron's administration would be turned out at the general election. And David Cameron decided that the only way to try to win that election was to head off UKIP uh, by offering a referendum, by basically saying to the people, you do not need to make this election about whether or not to stay in the European Union. If you re-elect me, I will give you a referendum on that question. And he was confident, I was confident, most of the ministers around the cabinet table were confident that the British people, uh, if, if faced with that question, would vote to remain in the European Union for the very simple reason that it's self-evident to anyone with a smattering of economics that the UK's prosperity and economic success is very heavily tied to access to European markets. We've been in a close relationship for 45 years, and for better or for worse, much of our industry, much of our financial services infrastructure in London is built up around serving uh, those European markets, 500 million rich consumers. And
1: and 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 so the the, the British people vote, and the it, it's an upset more or less because I think even people here in the United States, certainly people in the capital markets, thought that it was going to go through. I think we would also point out, I think. It was it was another. Did Scotland have a referendum as well a year prior or something like that? And that was previously. And that went well, and so there was a little bit of momentum for unity, and so the political decision. But but had he not made that decision, I'm going to get to these other questions first because I think it's elemental to what's going on on your side of the pond and our side of the pond. I'll tie it together in a second. But had he not made that decision. What do you think would have happened to UKIP, and what do you think? Where do you think we would be right now, in terms of that populist movement in the United Kingdom?
2: Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I'm pretty sure that what would have happened if David Cameron had not made the commitment to a referendum in the 2015 election is that we would have lost that election because UKIP would have split off enough Conservative votes uh, to allow the Labour Party to win. And that would have meant a Labour Party uh, under Ed Miliband, uh, brother of David Miliband, who's probably known to some of the people watching this, um, would have taken over as Prime Minister. Now, Ed Miliband is, uh, by my standards and your standards, a left winger, but he's nowhere near as much of a left winger as Jeremy Corbyn, who led the Labour Party in the meantime, between 2015 and um, uh, the uh, end of last year. So we would have had a Labour government. Uh, That would have undoubtedly been a difficult time for business and for the financial sector in the UK, but it clearly would not have been fatal. I mean, this would have been a Labour government that squeezed business and squeezed the city, but wasn't trying to snuff it out. Um, And I suspect in those circumstances- And and he was
1: for remain as well, not to interrupt you, sir. Absolutely. He was was for remain.
2: Yeah, we would, there would have been no question of a referendum, we would have remained in the European Union, and we would have, COVID uh, allowing, we would have just had a general election last month, which I expect the Tory party would have been, uh, been back in power again. Uh, The Brexit referendum would never have happened. Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party would never have happened. Um, So it would have been a very different story to tell.
1: So so why are we Brexiting? Uh, we, you know it's economically not the best thing for the citizens of the United Kingdom. Most citizens now, or correct me if I'm wrong, sort of realize that it's creating a lot of problems. I know there's an immigration issue and there's a fear-based issue, one that's somewhat xenophobic, but why are we Brexiting? Why don't we have leadership in the United Kingdom? We're going to get the United States in a second because I want your opinion uh, that just says, okay, look, this is not the right thing to do. And so as a leader, I'm going to try to move the population towards that decision versus where they are now.
2: The problem, Anthony, goes back some way. Um, The UK joined what was then the European Economic Community in 1973 um, on the basis of economics, that it was joining a common market. and the british people have never really been signed up even those who are enthusiastic for our relationship with europe have never really been signed up to the idea of political union european countries are too different uh, in many people's opinion for a political union to work and there's been a lot of resentment in the uk at the creeping encroachment by brussels over our everyday lives the uh, increasing political Um, union that the EU has become. And it was really a reaction to that, a feeling that people wanted to restore sovereignty to our own parliament, make our own decisions and control our own borders. But underlying that, undoubtedly, there was also a a broader economic malaise um, born out of the crisis in 2008-9, where many people looking back over the last decades feel that the rich have gotten richer and the poor have stayed put. Uh, Many ordinary working people who are not poor, but ordinary working people feel that they don't see a way forward for themselves. They don't see their prospects and the prospects for their kids in the way they used to. And that the world has become somehow more unfair and biased against them. And I think both in the US and the UK, uh, populism has ridden that wave of sentiment that uh, uh i guess it was the quantitative easing um the inflation of asset values that that led to that has um uh upset the traditional balance between um the different stratas of society and created this popular strife so
1: so and, and it's very well said and I, I just want one more question on the brexit and then we're going to switch to the pandemic and i'd love to talk to you about some of your views on the macroeconomic situation but the uh I guess, I guess the question I have, if I were a middle income person in Great Britain or the United Kingdom or lower middle income person, am I better off in a Brexit or am I better off uh, tied somehow to the European Economic Union?
2: So there is no doubt in my mind, although this is disputed, but there's no doubt in my mind, having run the UK treasury for three years, um, that you will be better off uh, if we remain closely linked to the European Union, closely trade linked. Um, The fact we have actually now already left the European Union in political terms, um, doesn't mean that we couldn't continue to have a very close trade relationship, which will salvage most of that um, advantage. That means that would mean having to align uh, a lot of our economic regulations, environmental labor market regulations and so on, with the European Union. Um, But it's clear that if we were prepared to do that, the European Union would be willing to continue to have a free trade area in Europe, which would allow us, for example, to continue to service Europe's financial um, markets from London in the way that we've done so successfully over the last couple of decades.
1: Okay, so at some point your prediction is that it gets resolved with some kind of deal and cooler heads prevail, or uh, uh, Great Britain or United Kingdom will not be part of Europe. What's your prediction?
2: So we're we're in a we're at a tipping point right now because um, the UK government has made it clear it will not ask for an extension of the current transition period, which comes to an end on 31st December. So absent a deal done over the next six months, uh, we will crash out of the trading arrangement we currently have and start trading on wto terms that is to say full arm's length with a with a hard border between the uk and the european union this by the way is particularly tough for ireland because nearly everything getting to ireland uh, between ireland and the eu passes through the uk and a full set of um, tariffs but there is um there is still time to negotiate probably an interim agreement Um, with a fuller and more detailed agreement later. But there will have to be a significant political shift because at the moment, the position of the UK government is that they would like a deal, but they will not concede uh, anything on um, equivalence of regulation. They insist on retaining complete freedom to regulate how they wish, and they will make no commitment to align with the EU. The EU's position is the exact opposite without alignment of regulation, uh, the UK can have no preferential access to European markets. So unless somebody gives way, there isn't gonna be a deal.
1: Okay, well, I certainly hope there is a deal, uh, Philip, because I think it'll be in the best interest of of your people. Um, I wanna shift gears and talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. the pandemic and your opinion of your government's response to the pandemic. Uh, we both see the uh, per capita incidents and in the case uh, risings. Uh, where were we? Uh, what did they do right and wrong? And where are we now? And where do you think we're going?
2: So um, there will be a post mortem in time on the way different governments responded um, to the challenge. I think the, the general um, uh, prevailing thought here is that um, when the government uh, finally decided to lock down, it probably did it a week or two later than it should have done. And that has caused us some uh, greater level of- Why, why uh, do you think that happened? Why, why did it
1: take longer? It certainly took longer in the United States as well. I'm just wondering on the inside, what do you think was going on caused the delay in that decision?
2: I think there was a genuine, um, Concern about shutting the, the economic impacts of locking down. We'd seen what had happened in Italy in particular, uh, was, was the example we were all watching. Um, and there was a desperate desire to try and, and avoid that. And also a little bit of hubris, um, frankly. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the British people are very um, used to being told that we have a great um, healthcare system in the UK. Um, state-run healthcare system. And um, frankly, the evidence is probably, that may have been true 60 years ago when when it was first uh, invented, Um, but it slipped behind many of its European comparators now. And there's there's still a bit of hubris here, people thinking somehow we've got a better structure, we'll be able to manage this better. And um, on the evidence we see at the moment, doesn't look like that was the case at all. One of the things that I take away from the differential handling in the UK and some of our European neighbours, and indeed the United States, is the degree of centralisation. This, the UK, is a very centralised country. Things are decided uh, centrally in London, and they're run from London. Germany, for example, is a very decentralised country. And even in the United States, we saw the President making various announcements and statements, but in the real world, those were not his province. The uh, The governors of the states were able to make their own decisions. And some of them clearly made better decisions um, than others. But the over-centralization of the UK, I think, is going to come under very heavy scrutiny in the period after this epidemic.
1: And and, But it, I think we recognize in a democracy, It was a problem. I also, frankly, think it was a cultural issue for the United Kingdom and the US. Having not experienced a pandemic in 100 plus years, it seemed like the Asian nations were more prepared than we were culturally. Uh, You could just uh, fly to Asia and see the number of people wearing masks prior to this pandemic to get that uh, feeling. Um, I want to switch gears to your opinion on the economy. And so uh, our economy's been hit, your economy's been hit, the global economy is basically in recession as a result of the pandemic. Where do you think we are now? Where do you think the United Kingdom is? And what policies would you recommend to help dig us out of where we are? And then the last question tied to all that, of course, is are the Europeans and uh, the men and women of the UK doing the right thing from a policy perspective, and what about the US? It's a long-winded question, Philip. I'm sorry, but you get the gist Uh, of uh, where I'm going. It's an economic macro question.
2: Yeah, I think um, where we are, as the lockdown is easing across Europe and beyond, um, the economy is gradually coming back uh, to life. And clearly, some of the demand suppression that has existed um, w- will, um, will disappear and that demand will bounce back. Um, but people can't go eat in restaurants and drink in bars if the bars and restaurants are closed. So for the moment, at least in the UK, uh, the services sector continues to struggle uh, to maintain uh, any reasonable level of output. And and of course, all the while structural damage is being done uh, to the economy. Businesses are failing, particularly over leveraged businesses um, are struggling with uh, lack of cash flows or, or reduced cash flows over a relatively long Uh, period of time. So uh, we have in place here, as you do in the US, all sorts of government sponsored arrangements to disguise unemployment um, by paying people's wages, um, to support businesses with liquidity problems, all of which will have to be unwound over the next six, nine months. And I think domestically, that is going to be a very, very difficult period uh, for politicians. In the US, I guess it won't happen until after the election uh, is out of the way Um, here. We've just had our election December last year. So there's no obvious um, point to work to, but um, withdrawing that money and recognizing that many people who were told that they were furloughed um, And and their wages were being paid are actually now going to be redundant and their wages will not be paid is going to be a politically very difficult um, moment. But I think our experience from past recessions is that where um, structural adjustments are needed in the economy, trying to um, mask that need and delay the action only makes things worse and um, recessions deeper. We need to get on. We need to let the businesses that are going to fail, that have to fail, fail. We need to release the resources from them, the labour and the capital. We need to retrain um, and re-equip labour where necessary. And we need to get those people turned around and back into work as fast as possible. Um, and, And that would be my recommendation to the UK government. Do not try to mask the scale of the problem. Do not try to delay the restructuring of the economy. I think the difficulty is that we're going to be doing this against, I suspect, a backdrop of stagnant or even shrinking world trade, which, for an economy like the UK, which is very, very open uh, to global trade, is going to be a very difficult, uh, a very difficult backdrop.
1: You're, you're, I, I want you to weave into this some of the uh, racial tension and the racial anxiety but, that both of our nations are feeling, and so you have the combination of people dislocated from work. And you have the, the and the issues around race. Is is uh, what are your feelings about that? And what kind of policy initiatives can be put in place to try to uh, calm those things down?
2: Yeah, well, um, I think you know the the, the trigger for um, this outbreak of um, racial demonstration has been um, things that happened in the U.S. and um, from wh- from where we sit over here, uh, it does continue to astonish um, the degree of um, uh, racial imbalance in policing techniques and the aggression that is often shown, and not just shown, but captured uh, on video. Um, And and that's an issue that I think is, I won't say it's unique to the US, of course, but I don't think we have that problem in quite the same way here. what it did, of course, um, the demonstrations Um, in support, uh, in solidarity with what was going on in the US led to a sort of wider uh, review of race relations here and a general feeling that many years on from the last time we um, had this sort of soul searching and decided that we needed to do more to become a more racially equal society, not enough progress um, has been made and more progress needs to be made. uh, and, and i sympathize with that i understand that i think it's the same strand of thinking um that informed what i described earlier around the brexit um decision that people feel that they don't have opportunity that they can't see the ladder um for them and their kids in the way that perhaps they used to think it would be there and um we need to create that sense of opportunity for all and there's a big review at institutional level um, going on here in academic institutions, in businesses, in charitable organizations, in schools, about the way they manage these things and how they can do better.
1: Well, I I think it's very well said. Before I turn it over to John and questions from our audience, um, last week uh, we had a professor from, the Stony Brook University, uh, Stephanie Kelton. She just wrote a best-selling book called "The Deficit Myth," Philip, and she is a modern monetary theorist, and she sort of believes that deficits do matter, but there's a lot of wide latitude that currency-issuing nations like the United Kingdom and the U.S. have in terms of managing their budgets, and that ultimately large deficits can be maintained and sustained by places like the United Kingdom and the US. And what are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Richard Nixon once said that we're all Keynesians now, Philip. He said that after he took us off the gold standard in 1971, are we, are we all Keynesians or all modern monetary theorists now?
2: Well, I spent um, much of the last three years trying to reduce, the size of the UK deficit and we finally got to the point just before I left office where our debt was shrinking from a very high level but shrinking as a share of GDP and I'm very proud of that not because I believe that we should slavishly um, eschew deficits and reduce debt but because I think that uh, common sense tells you that in times when the economy is doing relatively well uh, you shouldn't be running very large deficits um, and so that in times when the economy runs into trouble, you have the capacity to respond. So uh, what my successor has done at one level is disappointing for me. Um, you know, Having got the deficit here down to a mere 24 billion pounds a year, um, he's now taking it back up to more like 100 billion. But of course, uh, I recognize that that's something he had no choice about. He had to do that in the circumstances. And precisely the reason we were trying to control the deficit was to create that space, should we ever need it. Nobody knew we were going to need it in uh, 2020. But I would uh, I would draw a distinction between the United States and other currency issuing countries. I mean, the UK has the privilege of borrowing in its own currency. Um, and of course, one is in a very different position if one borrows in one's own currency than if one borrows in US dollars as a as a non-dollar uh, area country. Um, and the challenges that some of the emerging markets are facing around their dollar-denominated debt is, is evidence of that. But the US has the privilege of knowing that however irritated um, people markets might be with US government policies or um, even monetary policies, Fed the Fed's monetary policies. In the end, uh, the dollar is the backbone of people's reserve holdings. And um, that gives the US quite a large uh, amount of leeway, which frankly, we in the UK do not have. Um, the, the, the pound sterling is a minor reserve currency now, um, the euro uh, also a reserve currency, but not on the scale of the US dollar. So I think these things are calibrated to the extent to which third parties are forced to hold your currency, whether they like what you're doing or not.
1: Well, well, well said. I, I, you know, listen, I, I, I read through her whole book, uh, as a conservative and a lifelong Republican, uh, there are issues that I have with the book, probably perhaps you have the same issues. But the flip side is she said something to me that was very compelling is that, well, we're doing it anyway. You know, the United States is going to issue three or four trillion dollars of debt. So, uh, you know, spare me the sanctimony about all of this conservatism. And so I thought her discussion and her intellectual gravitas was fascinating. So, uh,
2: yeah, you know, I still remember uh, I still remember from the early days of the administration when they were assuring everybody, including me uh that all the stimulus programs were going to be self-financing and wouldn't lead to any increase in the u.s public debt
1: right well yeah I mean, well okay well anyway i have a bridge in brooklyn i can sell you Philip. if you never get back over here to this side of the uh, pond Let, let's uh, let's switch it over to uh, john darcy uh, john duckless darcy without the little mallard duck behind him go ahead john i'm sure you've got some questions speaking
0: of the duck i need to start with a comment that was submitted to the chat by bill he said for what it's worth i liked the duck but you should always agree with your mother-in-law so i just want to have that on the record that (laughs) the duck might be making a return for our our future salt talks um but the, the first question that we got from the audience is you touched a little bit on global trade and how you think the pandemic is going to affect it as it relates to the uk But generally, do you see any significant long-term shifts in the way we look at supply chains and global trade as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Yes, I'm sure that um, uh, everybody will want to look at resilience of supply chains, and that's obviously a sensible thing to do. There's clearly a tension between efficiency, getting the lowest cost, and resilience, uh, having the greatest security. And I think there are a lot of people out there who will be thinking that we got the balance wrong, uh, that we were driving efficiency at the expense of resilience too far, um, and that we need to build more resilience into supply chains in the recovery. But there are also a lot of people who are going to try and use that argument to make populist-driven, protectionist um, solutions, and we have to resist those. This is not a moment to dismantle global supply chains it's a moment to try and reinforce the resilience of them there are many ways that can be done and i think we should be engaged at an international level perhaps through the g20 in discussing how we can beef up the resilience of supply chains without dismantling the globalization agenda which has so um, uh, increased living standards around the world
0: the next question is in regards to the UK government's response to the pandemic. If you were still the Chancellor of the Exchequer, what would you be doing differently uh, than your successor, uh, Rishi Sanak?
2: Okay, I, I don't want to criticize uh, Rishi at all because obviously um, he's facing some very, very difficult challenges. Um, I, if I just tell you the areas where I am perhaps a little uncomfortable, uh, I am. Nervous about having extended the government financed uh, furloughing of employees through to the end of October. I personally think we should have tried to wean ourselves off that a little earlier. I think we are disguising some unemployment there, which we know is going to come through. uh, And um, this is not necessarily good for the economy uh, to continue to disguise that. Um, I think we have to take a sectoral approach. The British government, uh, the Treasury rightly hates having to, to take a sectoral approach, but it's so obvious that this pandemic is affecting some sectors much more than others that we uh, inevitably will need to deal with aviation, hospitality in a different way from the support we give to manufacturing, for example, or financial um, services. So I think um, over the next month or so, Um, Rishi Sunak needs to start um, spelling out what the recovery path is going to look like, including the tough measures. So far, it's all been about additional support to the economy, but he needs to be explicit that um, these measures will have to be time-limited, and we will have to face up to the real consequences of this crisis in terms of higher unemployment and lower output.
0: The next question has to do with the negotiations between the UK and the EU. What time frame do you see a deal eventually occurring? And when that deal uh, comes to fruition, do you see a devaluation of the British pound on the horizon?
2: Well, there are two, um, there are two scenarios here. Either we reach a deal by the end of this year, um, in w- but if we do, I would expect that to be a very uh, light touch Um, framework deal that probably won't be ideal from the point of view of either parties but will be acceptable as a temporary arrangement following which there will be a longer-term negotiation of a a more comprehensive agreement or we fail to reach a deal during the course of 2020 because of the political challenges around that in which case we would leave with no deal um, in December 2020 and there will be a period of time before the parties get back to the table, um, as I'm sure they eventually would, to negotiate a future deal. Now, clearly um, from where Sterling is at the moment, I guess quite a lot of um, the potential for no deal is already baked in there. Um, So if a deal were announced, if a deal were done, I would expect that to be positive for Sterling. If it becomes clear later in the year that the deal won't be done, I would expect um, there is some element of no deal that isn't yet discounted in the price of sterling. And so I would expect to see a negative movement if that becomes, um, if that becomes the most likely outcome.
0: You've talked a lot about the need for a global digital services tax. Please explain what that means and why you think it's something that the world
2: really needs. So. Uh, for many, many years, for the last hundred or so years, um, we've taxed international businesses on the basis of physical presence. So um, when Ford Motor Company uh, came to the UK, they built factories here, they built dealerships, they had a physical presence, which could be taxed in the UK. But increasingly in the digital economy, the services that generate huge amounts of value do not require a physical presence in the marketplace country. And therefore the taxing authorities in those countries have nothing that they can levy a tax on. And increasingly they see uh, digital business being done from tax haven countries into their own jurisdictions and and the, and the, uh, the taxable earnings from that business leaking away. So for example, in the UK Um, Most of the big digital companies do deliver their business in the UK via the Republic of Ireland, which has a very favorable um, tax regime. They have no um, physical presence in the UK to support that business. That is clearly not a sustainable um, model for the future as more and more business becomes um, dominated by digital uh, content. We have to find a better way of uh, taxing international businesses that don't have a physical presence in the marketplace and pretty much um, the world is agreed on a solution with the the exception of the United States and the United States takes the view that because at the moment many of these digital companies are US companies that uh, this digital tax initiative is discriminatory against US companies and the US is holding out. Personally, I I think that's a rather short-sighted view. I suspect we're gonna see over the the next decade or so, more and more of the key digital players being domiciled outside of the traditional developed countries and uh, more and more of them coming from Asia. And I think we do have to tackle this problem and ultimately it will be as much of a problem for the US as it is for the Europeans now.
0: You touched on Asia a little bit. What is the relationship right now between the UK and China? And as tensions continue to rise uh, between the United States and China, how does the UK fit into that? And what type of stance do they take uh, in relation to the US-China relationship?
2: It's a very good question. Uh, So the the US-China relationship and the the, the difficulties with it are a real challenge for the European countries in particular. nobody in Europe wants to be stuck, forced to choose sides between the world's largest economy and the world's second largest economy. In the case of the UK, we have a very open trading economy. We need to have good trading relationships with both the US and China, although there will never be any doubt where our strategic partnership is. We've been strategic allies of the US for, um, well, certainly since the Second World War, and that isn't gonna change uh, and nothing is going to change it. But in terms of trade, um, we we have a, an important trade with China as well as a very important trade uh, with the US. So that tension between the US and China is spilling over uh, and uh, challenging the Europeans who are increasingly being asked by both the Chinese and the Americans to take sides, um, to choose whether they're for or against one or the other on a particular issue, and we've seen this most graphically in relation to Huawei. Um, The UK relationship with China is further complicated by the UK's uh, particular position with regard to Hong Kong. Um, As the former colonial power in Hong Kong, um, we have certain um, obligations and certain rights under the agreement that we made with China back in 1994 which survive right the way through until um, 2049. So um, we have a specialist interest in Hong Kong. We have uh, millions of people with British passports living in Hong Kong Hong Kong citizens. Um, And therefore uh, the tension in Hong Kong is another source of friction between the UK and China. And uh, in my time in government, we were very careful to try to balance our relationship with China and to try to manage these difficulties and differences. Um, The current administration under Boris Johnson um, is very keen to be close to the Trump administration. And uh, to my mind, um, that has encouraged them to uh, move decisively to the US side of this argument and to be prepared to take bigger risks in the UK-China relationship. That's where I think we are now, quite a difficult uh, period. Well,
0: Chancellor Hammond, I want to thank you for all your, your very thoughtful answers and for joining us today on SALT Talks. Anthony and I were in London in early February. We got to see you. The world's a little bit of a different place since we saw you in February, but and we're hopeful that soon we'll be able to get back to the UK uh, and, and get to see you as the world opens up a bit. So Anthony, do you have any final thoughts before well, we I let uh, say- Chancellor Hammond go?
1: I wish you great health, sir. And I hope I can get you uh, here to North America for one of our uh, Salt conferences, uh, which hopefully uh, John and I are looking forward to starting again. We'll have more information out about that once we can figure out and allay everybody's health concerns. But uh, uh, Chancellor Hammond, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon.
2: Thank you. Look forward to it.